boost your mood in New Jersey. Surprise yourself with new wonders. Stroll beaches and boardwalks. Discover places to dine and catch up with friends. See inspiring art, culture, and history, too. Savor sea breezes and explore all the treasures nature has waiting for you. Rise to the call of adventure or catch a wave into the ocean blue. Find it all at visitnj.org. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All-Hit Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome to the X Zone, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host. I'm your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the X Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the X Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the X Zone Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. If you'd like to send me an email, it's xzone at xzoneradiotv.com on all social media sites, xzoneradiotv. And to find out what we have available for you 24 7, 365 on the xzone channel, just visit www.xzbn.net. My guest this hour, Exonation, is Keith Comos. Uh, he uses his experience in the technology field to apply modern scientific techniques to help resolve cold cases. He's frequently called on to do consultation work on matters related to social media forensics. And he's the co-author of Case Files of the East Area's Rapist, Golden State Killer, a book about California's most terrifying serial killer. His website, www.coldcasewriter.com. And Keith, welcome to the X-Zone. Thank you. Good to be here. Tell me about yourself and uh, your forensic experience. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. Well, like you were saying, I do a lot of social media forensics. Basically, mm -hmm. when somebody goes missing or something happened to somebody and, and nobody knows where this person went, a lot of times they'll call me and say, can you look at their tweets, their deleted tweets, Facebook posts, deleted posts, and can you help us find out what happened to this person? And 
a lot of times that's what I what I do. I've worked on some some large cases and some small cases, almost always on a volunteer basis. This is just something I do as a hobby because I enjoy technology and this is a way that I can do some good with it. And I had never really applied these skills to a cold case before mm-hmm. because they didn't have Twitter in 1970 or 1980. So I didn't really see how my skills could be useful. However, bringing together a bunch of data sources and running queries on it and putting in a bunch of data together really is some of the ways that some of these more complex cases can be looked at with technology. So that's what I did in the Golden State Killer case. So what was your what was your part in this investigation? Was it the forensic side? I didn't do any forensic work to speak of in this case. What we did was more of an awareness and information kind of kind of an approach. I had been doing some work on some some more active cases and one of my research partners came to me and said, "Hey, have you looked at this Golden State Killer case? Have you ever heard of this? What do you think about this? And I had never heard of it at this point. This was about two years ago. And I started looking into it and and 12 murders, 50 rape cases, 125 burglaries. I couldn't believe that I had never heard of this guy and that this guy was still free. And, And the body count was higher than Zodiac and it was just amazing. So I started looking at it and I couldn't find any information online. I couldn't find anything that would definitively say this is what happened and when. So we started building a website about this case. And as we did, more people started visiting it and hearing about the case and different witnesses from the case and law enforcement and investigators would start contacting us and say, I've got this information for you. I've got this information for you. We started getting police reports. We started re-interviewing victims and we compiled a whole bunch of information on the case and made it available online and even did some behind the scenes work Mm. as far as bringing a bunch of yearbooks and old directories together and putting them in a database and trying to find persons of interest that matched the different dates and locations to see if we could help the investigation any. So tell me a little bit about the Golden State Killer. He committed at least a dozen murders. We, now that he's been identified, we've been able to tie a 13th to him, over 50 rape cases. And all this was in about a 12-year period, 1974 to 1986. His attacks were terrifying. He, he, would, he was a home invasion rapist. Every victim thought that they, that they were going to die when he came in there and he would attack them. He would, he would awaken his victims with a flashlight in the middle of the night. They'd be sleeping and the flashlight would beam right in their eyes. He'd have the woman tie the man with shoelaces that he'd brought to the scene while he stood there pointing a gun at them and issuing threats. He'd tell them he only wanted food and money, probably to lull them into a false sense of security so that if they cooperated, they wouldn't be hurt or killed, so they thought. Then he would tie the woman's wrists together behind her back and tie her ankles. He'd retie the man's wrists just in case the woman had tied him gently and he would, he'd be able to get free. Then he'd be once his victims were secured, he'd rummage through the house, go through all their drawers, tear towels into strips to use as blindfolds. He'd turn off thermostats and anything that made noise. And he'd bring the woman into the other room and he'd stack dishes from the kitchen on the man's back so that if the man in the other room moved, he'd hear him, he'd hear him move. And then he'd sexually assault the woman. And then they were blindfolded and sometimes he'd put blankets over their heads and he'd take their, their wedding rings or their class rings and they didn't know when he left. Sometimes he'd been gone for 30 minutes or an hour before they even moved. So he was long gone. 
And he did this over and over and over again. He did it in Sacramento. He did it in Modesto, Davis, San Ramon, Walnut Creek. And, and police couldn't catch him. They didn't. He didn't leave any fingerprints. He nobody ever saw his face very clearly, and he was just a ghost basically. And as he as he moved to Southern California in late 1979, he started the same method of operation. But then he would kill his victims at the end of it, first by gunshot, then by bludgeoning. Oh my gosh! Scary stuff. Really. Um. Did he work alone? Was he a was he a lone assailant? As far as we know, he did work alone. There were a couple attacks where somebody thought that maybe there was a lookout mm -hmm. or a getaway driver outside, but he didn't steal a lot from the crimes, so there really wasn't anything for an accomplice to gain if the accomplice wasn't attacking as well. So now that he's been identified and his life is being combed through, looking for a possible accomplice is one of the, the things that we're looking at. Fascinating. Um, and now 40 years later, uh, apparently there's been an arrest. Tell us about that. So traditional investigative techniques hounded this killer for 40 years, and they didn't work. He was outside of the dragnet, outside of the variables. Nobody knew what to look for. Was he a utility worker? Was he a mailman? Was he a transient? It... it we really didn't know. There was evidence that he had some military experience just by the things that he did and said and the things that he wore. It looked like he might have had some police experience, especially in the beginning. He gave himself away a little bit. He told one victim, victim number three, he told her to freeze when he started when she started to move around. He had a police issue revolver at one point. He had a billy club at one point. And so you look at these things and you're like, well, maybe he was law enforcement. He had the bearing of a police officer, but he also had a military bearing. He also seemed to have connections to a utility company. Over half of his victims had a connection to the medical field. So where do you look for this guy? This was the end of the Vietnam era. Almost everybody in the area had military experience, especially in East Sacramento, where there were two giant military bases. So traditional techniques just weren't working. Finally, in late 1990, or it was, uh, yeah, late 1996, DNA technology connected several of his murders together. So instead of these isolated attacks, these attacks weren't connected together, even though the method of operation was similar. The attacks were connected through DNA. Then and this was in the Southern California attacks. In the Northern California attacks, there were three incidents there that had DNA. So those were connected in 2001. So at this point, technology had tightened the ring around this guy a little bit, at least in the sense that jurisdictions who had separate offenses, because I named all the cities that he attacked in early on, he was all over the place. Yeah. Uh, but now we knew that we were looking for the same guy. And DNA technology continued to improve, and they were able to do bigger and better things. In the late, or in the early 2000s, there was a proposition passed called Proposition 69 that would test death row inmates and people who had committed violent offenses. It would test their DNA against other DNA that was in databases and that, and from cold cases that it hadn't been solved. Unfortunately, the killer wasn't on death row, so this didn't really generate anything, but it did set a precedent for this case using DNA in interesting ways to help the investigation. As time marched on, 
one of the investigators, his name is Paul Holes, he was at the end, he'd been working on this for 24 years. He was at the end of his career. He was retiring. He, among other investigators, thought, well, this is my last shot to do this. He said, let's use our resources and pull everything into the latest DNA technology and see what happens. A couple things had come along in this point. One was open source databases for DNA. This is where you can upload. It's like Ancestry or 23andMe, where you can upload your DNA profile and people use it to connect e to each other through genealogy. All right, we're going to have to exercises. take a little bit of a cliffhanger here. I have to take my break. Please stand by. Exonation and Keith Ka Ka Comos. Is it Comos? Comos, yeah. Comos um, is our guest. We're talking about case files of the East Area Rapist. Golden State Killer. His website is www.coldcasewriter.com. And we'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue this story right here in the Exome from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simo TV. Simo TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, sci-fi and horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at SimulTV.com. Do it today. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. 
Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Exonation, Keith Comos is our special guest this hour. He's the author of a book that is very interesting for all you real crime buffs. It's entitled Case Files of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. His website is www.coldcasewriter.com. Now, I'm sorry, we had to go to the break uh, just before you uh, you were telling us that they were, were putting all this information into a database. So traditional investigative methods hadn't worked. This case was almost 40 years old at this point. We're talking about modern era, 2017, 2018. Investigators from all kinds of jurisdictions had been working on this. They'd been generating leads, going down different paths, and nothing had led to this offender. So technology had advanced to the point where they thought maybe this could be solved. They had this offender's DNA. Back when he was offending, DNA wasn't a thing. Forensic DNA wasn't in use. So he was careful about his fingerprints. He was careful about being seen but he was not careful about DNA because how would he know that that would come along? So this was the one way that this offender could be identified without traditional investigation. So two things had happened recently. One is that open source genealogical DNA databases came into existence. These are just websites where people can upload their own DNA profile and do genealogical research or scientific research or something like that. Another thing is that familial DNA testing had come onto the scene. That means if you are a brother of somebody, you can get your DNA tested and it will tell you if you're somebody else's brother when you compare samples. So sample A and sample B are compared. You can tell if sample B is a brother or sister to sample A. This familial testing had advanced to the point where it could go all the way to fourth cousins. Wow. These are people who share great, great, great grandparents. Um, something like that. I forget if there's three or four greats. Either way, it's we're talking about over 100 years and a lot of people. We're all connected almost as far as fourth cousins go. So this is very powerful technology. What they did is they took this familial testing, this distant familial testing, and they applied it to these open source DNA databases. You don't need a warrant to do this. You don't need permission from 23andMe or Ancestry or any of these other places because this is an open database. So when they did this, they got several matches, which is exciting because now you're dealing with maybe a thousand people as opposed to the entire state of California. So when time permitted, they whittled away at this. They excluded different people. Well, this person's a female. They can't be the person. This person is, is way, way, way too young. They would have been 10, 10 years old at the first attack. So they did it, and they just kept working on it over a period of about maybe six, eight months. And starting in about January or February, it started to really heat up, and they got a few really good suspects. Uh, I, I guess about two or three people had really bubbled to the top of the list. One guy looked really likely. He lived in Oregon, and they spent most of their time investigating him. They went and got a direct DNA sample mm -hmm. 
and this person was ruled out. So they thought, well, it must be one of these other guys. They started to research these people and things started to fit with one of these suspects named Joseph D'Angelo. He had been in the Navy. He had been a police officer in two of the different jurisdictions that were hit, two of the main ones. So they thought, well, let's see what we can find on this guy. Let's maybe go get a direct DNA sample. On, I guess it was his second to last day of work, Paul Holes, who I had mentioned earlier, who had spearheaded a lot of this research, went and he parked his car in front of Joseph D'Angelo's house. And he thought, well, do I go up and get a DNA sample? What do I do in this situation? Several times he had gone up to somebody's home and said, I'm here about an old case, your name came up, I'd like to get a DNA sample just to exclude you. And he would do this and sometimes the person would give a sample, sometimes they wouldn't, and then they'd go back and they'd get probable cause from a judge, then they'd force a sample. Right. So he thought about doing this and then part of his research had indicated that this guy owned multiple firearms. So he thought, well, I'm just not gonna do that, do that in this case. I mean, he had done it so many times before, he'd done it for persons of interest that I'd come up with. Uh, there was one that I came up with that, that he was really excited about. He and another agent went and and got a sample directly almost the same day that I turned it in. And it didn't turn out to be the guy. But So he ended up not doing this, which is a great thing because this was the guy. Joseph D'Angelo ended up being a direct DNA match. Who knows what would have happened to Paul if he had gone to the door that day mm-hmm. on his second to last day of work. It could have, been, could have ended really poorly. So thank goodness they did do that. So... They started following this guy. They got a DNA sample that he had discarded in a public place. They ran it. It was a match. They knew that they had found the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. At that point, they switch into high gear. Overnight, they write a, a uh, an arrest warrant. It's about 40 pages. They had a judge sign it. And then they go and they plan an arrest. And it... Some of the details are are private about the arrest, but basically an officer came to his yard on a ruse and then officers came behind him, grabbed him, put him in the car and they took him to the jail. Once he was at the jail, they were able to interrogate him for about seven hours. And not not a lot's been released about that, but one officer told us that the interrogation was productive, whatever that means. After that, he he hasn't really spoken to police, but Mm -hmm. that was how they identified this guy. It's brand new technology. It's cutting edge. It's to the point, you know, when you look at fourth cousins, it's to, it's to the point where any serial killer who left DNA, any person who was unidentified who committed a crime and left this kind of evidence, it's possible that we may be able to track them down. The next case that they're looking at, not this particular group, but another group, they're looking at taking a partial DNA profile of the Zodiac killer right, and trying to identify him through that. And that would be another huge win for the justice system like catching the Golden State Killer was. Did the Golden State Killer ever think he'd get caught? I don't think he did. He thought he was smarter than everyone. He committed so many crimes over such a long period of time and nothing had happened. He was still living in one of the areas where he offended, Citrus Heights, which is an East Sacramento neighborhood. It's an East Sacramento area. He was still living just a few hundred feet away from some of his attacks. That's pretty brazen, but he was a brazen guy. He went on and he had a family. He's got three children. He's got a wife. He was living basically a normal life. He was working in Roseville, which isn't far away for the past 20 something years. 
So I don't think he thought he would be caught. He even was bold enough to call victims. His last offense was in 1986, but he continued to call victims on the phone and threaten them and talk to them even after his crime spree ended, which obviously indicates that he's still alive. A smarter offender who is more afraid of being caught would have made law enforcement wonder, is this guy gone? What happened to this guy? But still living in the area, still, he put his name and his handwriting all, all over everything, all kinds of documents, even though he left handwriting at one scene accidentally. So he just, so much time had passed since his, his last murder, 1986. What is that, 30 years, yeah. 32 years? He thought he was home free. He's 72 years old now. He thought he'd gotten away with it, but technology caught up to him. How many, uh, how many different offenses was he charged with ultimately? He has formally been charged with, I guess, a dozen murders at this point. And the, the problem with the burglaries and the rapes is that the statute of limitations is way up on those. It was three years at the time, so they weren't prosecutable. And what happened is even though he left DNA at Northern California scenes and at other scenes, they ended up tossing it out aside from just three cases, three cases out of 50, they tossed the evidence because the statute of limitations was up. They didn't know that he'd committed murder at that point. So he's only able to be prosecuted for probably 12, maybe 13 murders. There's a 13th that he committed in 1975 that we were able to figure out now that he's been identified and, and knowing where he lived. It's interesting because there's this East Area rapist, Golden State Killer these attacks in Sacramento and down in Southern California. Before all of this, there was a separate crime spree that had never been connected to this guy in Visalia, California, called the Visalia Ransacker. And this guy, this Visalia Ransacker, committed 125 burglaries or so, committed one murder and one attempted murder. And up until the, the arrest of Joseph D'Angelo, we didn't know that this Visalia Ransacker in this East Area Rapist Golden State Killer was the same guy. Information obtained during the arrest clinched the idea that these two were the same person. Did D'Angelo ever admit to any of the crimes? He, supposedly, he talked to investigators about that. We don't know if he got he actually admitted to anything. Mm -hmm. And whatever he said is probably not going to be admissible because he didn't have an attorney present. But they, they caught him. He was bewildered. They took their chance. They got some information. And we don't really know what all transpired during the seven-hour interrogation session. He has yet to admit to anything in court. He's had a few hearings, and he hasn't entered a plea yet. He hasn't really said much of anything. He's confirmed that Joseph D'Angelo is his name and that he knows what he's being charged with, and that's it. So it's still very early in the process. We're waiting to see what he's going to plea. He's got a court date on May 29th, which is in Sacramento, where he's being charged with two murders. Then he's got a court date the next day in Orange County, where he'll probably appear by video. And at that court date, he's supposed to enter a plea to some of the murder charges. And we'll see how that goes. We don't really have a solid indication on whether he's going to take responsibility. Does he want to stand trial? Mm -hmm. Is he going to try to kill himself in prison or in jail? We don't know. Does he have any hope in hell of, of getting acquitted? There's always that, that small chance. The process that was used to identify him is so new and so innovative. Right. 
it's one of those cases where the law hasn't caught up to technology yet. Technology is outpacing it. So this may be one of those cases mm. where the legality of his identification through DNA may be challenged. Well, let's uh, pause still... here. We've got to take our news break, Keith. Fascinating okay. story. Great work. Exonation. Keith Comos is our special guest. www.coldcasewriter.com. And we'll be back after this news break. Don't go away. From our broadcast studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to the world and beyond, you're watching the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. AVS Media You have heard of the Exxon? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like Exxon, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnix, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God, it was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God. And finally, after the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Thank you. 
Keith, uh, has has his family made a statement, or yeah, how do they feel knowing that the person who they thought was dad or or hubby is really a serial killer? He's got siblings, and they've made a statement, and they're completely bewildered by this. They said they had no idea, and he had even mentioned the the attacks one time to a family member. Uh, just asking, what would you do if this guy came into the house, or what would you do about this case? So, and they they remember that tidbit, but other than that, they really had no idea. He was working as a police officer from 1976 through 1979 during the Sacramento East Area Rapist series. So oh, he was God. actually working as a police officer while he was offending, and then he moved down to Contra Costa County and continued his offenses while working as a police officer up in Auburn near Sacramento. So they, I mean, he had a weird schedule already and his, his family apparently had no idea. Now we haven't heard from his wife or his children. We do have contacts who know his children who have written into the website saying, I know this person, I know this person. They've all taken a leave from their, their jobs and really haven't been seen or heard from and what a terrible situation to wake up yeah. and find yourself in, to find that your husband or father or brother was this person and you had no idea. And it's they're as much victims as anybody else that, that he's terrorized throughout the years. And that talk about getting the rug pulled out from under you. It's, that's a, a nightmare scenario. Another nightmare scenario is that this person was a police officer sworn to serve and protect. Right. What a disgrace oh. to the badge for everything that that stands for. He was also in the, the armed forces. What a disgrace to everything that those men and women stand for and what they fight for. And he used that training against the community. He's supposed to serve the community and he was terrorizing it. So it's really a, a lot of the investigators that we've gotten to know a little bit better throughout this process are really taken aback by that. And, and some of them are taking it a little bit hard because he worked for the jurisdiction right next to theirs. And some of the police chiefs that, that worked with this guy back in the day have come out and they're still alive. And they came out and said, I really had no idea that this guy was doing this. This is, I'm just as surprised as you are. He was never one of the guys. He was never really a joiner. He was kind of a loner, but Obviously, they had no idea that he was doing this, that the very person that they were hearing about and looking for right was standing right beside them. Has he undergone psychiatric examination yet? I don't know if he has or not. That would really be interesting because one of the things that attracts people to this case, as far as their interest in it, they want to know what makes people like this tick. Is yeah. there a way that we can identify these type of behaviors early before somebody turns out like D'Angelo? And I don't know if he's undergone psychiatric evaluation. I think so far the the strategy has been to delay and get continuances of hearings. And I don't even think it's made it that far as far as where psychiatric evaluation would be recommended or ordered. It's going to be a really slow process, but that's going to be an interesting dive for somebody when they do get to analyze him. Was there anything in his childhood that would explain why he did what he did. Stuff has come out about his, the possibility that he witnessed his sister being sexually assaulted while they were on one of the bases, um, the military bases. And that hasn't been confirmed yet, mm -hmm. but that would 
that would be a traumatic thing. Obviously, that happens to other people, sadly, and they never turn out like D'Angelo. But it's there has to be something in his past, either real or perceived, that made him that that hurt him in some way or created some sort of anger or was some sort of environmental trigger for him to go down this path. It's it can't be explained by genetics in the sense that there aren't as many of these types of people walking around as there would be if genetics was the only explanation. So there hasn't been anything real clear cut yet. We're still sort of unpacking all of the the details of his life and it's hard because we're talking about the 1960s, mm-hmm. even the 1950s and 1970s. It's really hard to recreate that world. And so many of those witnesses have passed on, teachers and people who were with him in the military. More and more is coming out. So more will be revealed and discovered as time goes on. The scary part is that he was using his 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 job as a police officer to actually to target victims. He was, yeah. And that, that's just, wow. it's unbelievable. What was he doing in the Army? Or in the Armed Forces, I should say. Well, yeah, he was in the Navy. He was on a ship um, that went to Australia for a while. It was mm-hmm. Vietnam-related, and we really don't know a lot about what he was doing there. There was one interesting a little little episode where he was AWOL for three days when they were in the United States. And uh, I, stuff like that happens, but it's inter- it's just interesting in light of who he was. And it's possible that some of the tricks that he learned as far as putting dishes on people's backs and the way he restrained people, he could have learned that in some of the armed forces because some stories have come out about that happening in the Vietnam era. So it's possible that he could have learned some of those things in the armed forces. And it's also possible that there are victims that, that were victims of D'Angelo when he was in these different places. And it's just, it's hard to know how far back his attacks go and how long he's been like this. A lot of questions there yet to be answered. Uh, How long do you think this court case will be if it ever gets to court? It could last years. There are several jurisdictions involved, several charges involved. See, originally when they talked about apprehending this offender, and it was just cloud talk, Mm -hmm. there was a specific plan in place where he would be charged, he would be tried for four of the murders in one jurisdiction, and they had all their ducks in a row. But once he was caught, everybody started charging him. And a little bit of that was political, and a little bit of that was, wow, we've got this guy. We want to prosecute him, too. It's almost criminal if you don't charge him and don't want to prosecute him. So the original plan was a bit smoother, and this they're kind of improvising and making up as they they go along. The the four district attorneys that that have pressed charges against him recently met and discussed which venue they're going to be at, which charges should go first. They didn't decide on anything yet so it's still sort of to be determined but it could go on for a long time the case could go on and this guy could just kick the bucket then what happens then at least we know who he was justice Mm -hmm. was served in the sense that he was identified he was exposed i'm not sure how much closure that actually brings somebody i'm not even sure a conviction would bring closure to people but at least 
the the fear, the sense of fear that this phantom is out there mm-hmm. and could still be out there and was still out there. At least that part of it is gone. It's sad that he wasn't caught earlier when he could be prosecuted and a life sentence could mean something. In, in your 70s, it's not nearly as traumatic as being locked up when you're 40. So he could die in prison. He could die in jail awaiting trial. He could kill himself. He's on suicide watch. Who knows what will happen? It's His psychology is interesting to the point where he's not going to take these charges the way that a normal person would. He doesn't feel fear the same way, obviously, because of the way he reacted in certain situations. So it's really interesting. They say that an offender like this thrives on control. And being in jail and being tried for murder is about the least control you'll ever have of your life. So it's just interesting to see how he'll mentally and physically react to this sort of situation. During his first hearing, which was right after he was uh, captured, he appeared in a wheelchair and he appeared disoriented. And that was not the same guy that they had arrested. The guy that they had arrested, he was just riding his motorcycle down the highway at 90, 100 miles an hour. He was building a table in his driveway. He was an active, very active 72-year-old. So it's it's hard to say if he's physically and mentally deteriorating or if he's putting on an act to gain sympathy. We really don't know. It's it's only been a couple of weeks or two or three weeks now, and, and so much has happened already. We'll just have to wait and see. Was there any bleeding heart public defender or his own defense attorney who tried to make bail? I don't think she was bold enough to try to make bail. One of the interesting strategies the public defender is employing, and I understand she's got to do her job to yeah. the best of her ability, and it's a terrible position to be in, but she's she's ver- trying very hard to humanize him. In court, she's patting him, she's rubbing his shoulders, and it's people look at this and they're like, what is she doing? Well, it's, it's a court strategy. She's really got very few cards to play. She's trying to humanize him, saying like, poor old grandpa didn't know, doesn't know why he's here, that sort of a a defense. But it's a very difficult position to be in. She's so far been successful in delaying a few things. She's trying to keep the search warrant and the arrest warrant sealed because there's obviously some incriminating things in the search warrant. And a lot of the one of the main reasons is there's information about the rape crimes and witnesses who are passed on that exists in the arrest warrant and search warrant. Mm-hmm. Those people aren't going to be called to testify. So if she can suppress those two warrants, then that evidence will never be admitted. So she's really doing the best that she can. It's a very odd position. There's even questions as to whether he's, that he should have a public defender based on the assets that he possesses. And it's just kind of a mess right now. And uh, she may remain on the case. She may leave the case. It's hard to say, but nothing much has happened yet as far as court goes. All right, Keith, stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our final break. Exonation. Keith Comos is our special guest. www.coldcasewriter.com. And we'll be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell, who still is suffering from his gosh darn summer cold. Here from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide and more. 
Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like Exxon, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. The new nonfiction book, Razor of Madness, is similar to cult movies like Clockwork Orange, Dragon's Tattoo, or The Other Side of Hell. Wayne Morin Jr. and Thomas Lee Howe will expose widespread and systematic deficiencies in this thought-provoking tell-all novel. Mind control rages among scholars in law schools. Human rights are ignored while thought reform and mental manipulation are accepted practices used as behavior modification. Dr. Louis Jolion West comes to mind. Media and public scrutiny shows that United States mental hospitals are in fact destructive murder industries. Razor of Madness Expose Novel details this epidemic through an in-depth professional and personal investigation. For decades, there has been a revolving door policy that still releases killers and pedophiles back into society. The maestro of mind control continues to haunt America to this very day. Razor of Madness is available in paperback or as a downloadable ebook at Amazon.com. I'm William S. Peckham. If you enjoy a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, then you'll love my novel, From Out of the Woodwork. It's the story of a young Toronto contractor, Sean Kennedy, who buys derelict homes, guts them, and turns them into multifamily dwellings, slums just waiting to happen. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, the house fights back. Former owners unexpectedly come out of the woodwork as he starts the destruction. The apparitions come to him when he touches old books, reads hidden letters, rummages through old boxes, finds a locket or reads a discovered manuscript of a murder mystery. From Out of the Woodwork will take you from 1899 to the horror of the World Trade Center, September 11, 2001. Check out From Out of the Woodwork on my website, www.williamspeckham.com. Keith Comos is our special guest explanation. We're talking about Keith uh, Comos, who wrote a book called Case Files of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. His website is www.coldcasewriter.com. First of all, Keith, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, congratulations on super forensic work, my friend. Well, thank you. It was a long road for me, and I was only involved for two years. There are some people that have been involved in this case for almost the whole duration. Wow. Some of the original investigators were on the case and they were taken off or they retired and they continued to work on this into their retirement. And this became almost some people's life's work. And to have it pay off like this is really incredible. How do you see DNA and forensics working in the law enforcement community in the future? It's interesting because a lot of law enforcement organizations are reluctant to accept 
new technology. I run into this wow. all the time when I do social media forensics is a lot of people don't see the value in it. They don't understand it. They would rather the FBI do it. But this is becoming one of the most important tools in the tool belt when mm -hmm. it comes to capturing offenders, not just cold cases, but modern cases as well, because DNA can be lifted from almost anything now. You used to have, to have a hair or saliva or some other bodily fluid. Now there's something called touch DNA, where just the, the most minute trace of skin oils or skin cells can run a full DNA profile. And it's really getting to the point, it's almost big brother at this point, where almost anybody can be identified when they've been somewhere. And the traditional methods of, of hiding from the law are going away thanks to this technology. So rather than just the FBI and some of the bigger law enforcement organizations, I see a lot of smaller jurisdictions being able to access this type of technology. Maybe their labs aren't up to, up to snuff, but other labs in, in other places in the state and country and other countries may be able to assist on more difficult cases. And it's expensive. It's hard to get the resources for this type of thing. This case was lucky in that it had a lot of publicity and that resources were easy to justify for the district attorneys. But this technology really is the future of crime solving. What are the comments that the DA are giving out? They're not saying much. The less they say, the better, actually, mm -hmm. because anything that they say can harm their case or be used against them or be used in a, an appeal or a mistrial or something like that. There's one jurisdiction in particular, Orange County, who was originally sort of slated to attack this case and prosecute this guy when he was found. They actually issued a self-imposed gag order starting last summer because they had unbridled optimism that this thing would be solved thanks to advancing technology and all of the awareness that this case was getting. So they've been really good about not going out there and saying things that could jeopardize any sort of prosecution. When you do talk to them, it's mostly political and big picture stuff right now because they're just trying to say, we want to prosecute this guy, we've got evidence, sort of let us do our jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, the media can help and it can hinder. So they're trying to manage the outside forces more so than the inside. They've all got great investigators and great staff that can bring this thing home. They're trying to work the big picture stuff. You know, I'm a former cop up here in Canada. And up, up here we have CPIC, the Canadian Police Information Center, which is a lot like your uh, NCIC down there. Uh, is this information available to departments online or is it do they have to go through the FBI and... Uh, and, and the chain of command, so to speak. The actual information on the Golden State Killer case? On, on, any, on, on, on any DNA profile. Like, for example, on any... uh, a, a detective in Sacramento, does he have access to a DNA database where all of these uh, criminals who have either uh, surrendered or had their DNA taken the, the results of this DNA put into this database. Now, do, do departments around the United States have access to that database, or do they have to go through the chain of command by going through the FBI and having the FBI do what they do in order to give them back the information? They do and they don't. We have a national DNA database called CODIS, right. which is any convicted felon, any convicted criminal that has DNA available is put into this. And when you run into a cold case or you've got a suspect, you can run it against this database to see if there's a hit. Almost anybody in the law enforcement community can access this. Then there's 
specific state-controlled DNA databases that may or may not be part of this. And it does take a little bit of not asking for favors, but contacting people in other jurisdictions and going through some red tape to be able to run in these different databases. And then you've got cold cases in other jurisdictions that have their own profiles and their own labs that have profile DNA profiles on convicted killers and or suspected killers and, and unidentified criminals that they have that's not really in any kind of database that they are running and checking themselves every once in a while. So there is an effort to nationalize a lot of this stuff. There's an effort to get more state databases online and to get all of this stuff put out there. It's it's hindered by by not having enough resources, some privacy and lobbying right. type laws and, and efforts are kind of against some of this stuff. So it becomes a political issue. And um, But as much as can be done, this is done and available to law enforcement agents. What is your best estimate on unsolved cold cases in the United States? Well, there are so many crimes that are committed. One of the things we realized when we were researching this case is that the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer was not the only really bad guy operating at that time in that area and doing those types of crimes. We were finding case after case of this offender and that offender and, and all these other different types of rapists and killers and serial offenders that had a profile very similar, a criminal profile very similar to the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. And in trying to tie other crimes to him, even now, even now that we know who he is, we're finding other crimes that look just like him, but they're not him because we have DNA on those too. And there are so many crimes that occur in California is one of the biggest state or it's the biggest state. It's got the biggest population and it's got one of the highest crime rates because it's got so much population sure. and there are just so many cases over there. I don't, I couldn't even guess at how many crimes there are. The outlook for solving these types of cases is good. However, because of this advancing technology become, because people are becoming more aware of what's possible and what's suspicious and what, and what's not, there are more television programs and more people who are taking an interest in true crime. And these types of cases are getting more publicity and more resources are being spent and more of these are being solved. And the outlook as far as solving and wrapping up a bunch of these is good. And hopefully these new technologies also act as a deterrent to criminals who are thinking of doing something like this or have committed something like this and may want to commit something again. Hopefully this type of case, the D'Angelo case, serves as a deterrent to criminals in the future. If, De, if D'Angelo is found guilty, does he face the death penalty? The death penalty is on the table at this point. Now, California hasn't executed anybody since the early 2000s, but the death penalty still holds that possibility, and death row is worse than regular prison, so that is still being talked about. What are your final thoughts for tonight, Keith? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for coming on the show. I love the work that you've done. Congratulations. It's nice seeing the good guys getting the upper hand for a change. This was one of the biggest wins in the criminal justice system in history. This was one of the, the worst offenders, and he left no clues that were actionable. He left nothing that could trace back to himself, mm -hmm. and he still got caught. There's hope 
for every type of cold case and every type of victim out there. This case is proof that miracles can happen and that law enforcement does not quit when it comes up against something that seems insolvable. And it's proof that technology and the support of the public and the support of the government can help solve these cases. So there's hope for anybody who's been victimized. And there's a statute of limitations on some of these crimes, but there's no statute of limitations on the amount of work and support that people will give to help find resolution and to help solve these things. A bunch of dedicated cops working on this case made the difference, as well as some forensic people who have a lot of technical savvy like yourself. Um, what are your final thoughts for the explanation tonight? We've got about a minute. Well, one of the most important things to this case was that witnesses and victims kept advocating for it. When there's an injustice, it only becomes permanent if nothing is done. So cops, the public, people who support it, people who write about it, people who have any kind of skill at all. My skill is technology. How could that affect a cold case? Well, I put a website out there. Mm -hmm. Anybody can do anything to help move the, the wheels of justice in this. And the wheels of justice turn slowly in some cases, but they do still turn. We all need to be proactive. Right. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Let our listeners know where they can get a copy of your book and give your website out one more time. It's at Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble and all kinds of other online retailers. The website is coldcasewriter.com, and the book is Case Files of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer by Cat Winters and Keith Comos. Keith Comos, thank you very much for joining us, and I look forward to the next time you meet us back here in the Exxon. Hopefully, I will not have a cold. I will do my best. <laughs> Take care, Great Keith. to be here. Thanks. Nice talking to you, sir. Exxon Nation, once again, Keith Comos has been our guest this hour. His website is www.coldcasewriter.com and the name of his book, Cold Case Files of the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to us on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. My name's Rob McConnell. I'll be back after the news. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com.
Are you or is someone you know struggling with addictions, depression, anxiety, relationships, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, grief, success, and prosperity? Do you know that your subconscious belief plays a big role in the outcome of your hard work? We can help you permanently change the beliefs that may be the reason for your struggles and failures. We care about getting you the return on your investment and the results you are looking for. We can help you be free of the limitations of your past and in realizing your highest potential. We work with people by phone and Skype. For more information, visit us at www.ritasoman.com. That's www.ritasoman.com. Do you think you have energy problems in your home? Do you feel better when you're away than when you're home? Joey Korn is a global leader in the world of dowsing who specializes in personal energy clearing and space clearing. He can help you create an ideal energy environment in your home no matter where you live in the world. Learn about his remote spiritual house cleaning services and much more at www.dowsers.com. You can get Joey's book, Dowsing, A Path to Enlightenment, as well as other dowsing books and tools, Kabbalah books, and Walter Russell books. Joey's work is really amazing. Go to dowsers.com right now. That's D-O-W-S-E-R-S dot com or call 1-877-DOWSING. That's 1-877-369-7464.